Hello and welcome back to the Northern Agenda, the podcast that brings you the politics news that matters for the North and from the North. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda Editor for Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News and Liverpool Echo newspapers. This week, we have got a big exclusive story to bring you on levelling up and the way that local leaders in the North are forced to bid against each other for cash. But later in the episode, we'll be talking about the huge changes to local democracy that's arriving on April Fool's Day in the rural heartlands of the North. I've been speaking to two politicians from these patches, North Yorkshire and Cumbria. One is Keen Duncan, a senior councillor on the new North Yorkshire Authority, talking about the hot potato of active travel schemes that prioritise cyclists and walkers over cars, and the A64, the road that's holding back North Yorkshire's economy. And in Cumbria, we're hearing from John Stevenson, the MP for Carlisle, who also leads the influential Northern Research Group of backbench Tory MPs. I've been asking him how levelling up is faring under Rishi Sunak and why quite so many Conservatives are leaving politics ahead of the next election. But I promised you a big exclusive and here at the Northern Agenda, we have been digging into the controversial process that saw hundreds of local councils bidding for cash to improve their communities as part of the levelling up fund, which is worth £4.8 billion as a flagship part of Boris Johnson's domestic agenda. There were lots of winners who got £20 million here or £10 million there for regeneration schemes, but also many more losers who put time and money into their bids and got nowhere. But it turns out there were one big set of winners from the whole process, and that is the consultancy firms who helped our cash-strapped local councils write their bids. Now, let's find out a bit more about this from David Dubas-Fisher, my colleague in Reach's data unit, who has been digging into literally hundreds of Freedom of Information Act requests from local councils across the north to get to the bottom of this story. David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So yeah, we launched this project uh, a, month, a couple of months ago. Uh, so we sent FOIs out to all the local authorities in Great Britain. You know, just shy of 400 requests went out. We heard back from 283. So there's a lot of emails to uh, troll through. So they've all made bids to this levelling up fund with the aim of, you know, getting some money to boost the local economy. So, so yeah, 283 said that they'd made a bid uh, to the whole thing. And in total, uh, um, about just just over £23 million was spent on contractors to help support support the bid. Now, obviously, um, some of these contractors, you know, the, these contractors uh, will no doubt say, you know, they provide a lot of skill and experience that local authorities don't necessarily have. So if you're planning to uh, rebuild a shopping precinct, you're going to have to consult some architects. But it all meant that there's sort of a lot of this money, because of the, the way that this process ran, um, a lot of money was spent on bids that, did, that didn't succeed. And a lot was spent on ones that were never going to succeed because the government changed the goalposts halfway through the process. And the way they did that, just for people who are unaware, is that, so there were two rounds, weren't there, to the levelling up fund. And a number of authorities got money in the first round of the levelling up fund. And then they, but what they didn't realise when they then bid again for the second round is that if they were successful first time round, they would not be eligible for any money in, in the second round. So lots of them put in bids 
that were basically a waste of time because they were never going to get any any success out of it. Yeah, so 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 from our from our investigation, we found yeah a to- total of twenty three million pounds spent across the two different rounds. Uh, Nine point three million of that came from councils in the north. Um, now, in terms of successful bids across both rounds, six point four million was spent. Uh, Twelve point three million, however, was spent on unsuccessful bids. Now, in terms of the um, the sort of the doomed bids, so where the council got money in round one, but then bid again in round two, our analysis shows that around two point seven million pounds was spent uh, by by different local authorities on bids that were just never going to be successful. Twenty three million is a huge amount of money. I mean, even in even in these days of uh, you know inflation going through the roof, twenty three million pound is still a lot of money to be wasted. Uh, or spent on consultants. I mean, it, it's basically the same value as one of the big projects that the Leveling Up Fund would would pay for. So it's a lot of money, and obviously councils are incredibly cash strapped at the moment. They're you know, they've had year after year of cuts. Their their resources are dwindling down to virtually zero, and they've got the huge rising demands of paying for adult and child social care. So this is money. They can't afford to spend, isn't it? And like, I mean, in, there are some individual really striking numbers of like particular individual councils spending huge amounts on just by themselves on on consultants, aren't there? So, looking at individual councils, the top one that came back to us is County Durham. So, County Durham spent a total of one point three million pounds on consultants. Now, they've not told us which firms received that money, uh, and it's across two rounds of bids. So they they made a bid in round one, rural connectivity and cultural program. They actually won that, so that was twenty million pounds they bid for. And then in round two, uh, they made a bid for ninety-eight million pounds to enhance the city centre of Durham. And that was obviously this. This was one of those doomed to failure bids. Now the, the total they've given us one point three million is that's for the whole round one and round two bidding. So we can't say how much was spent on the failed bid. You know, it's a hell of a lot of money. We've got a lot of political reaction to this. And I think that there seems to be a consensus cross-party, really, that the way the current system works, where councils who don't have much money are forced to bid against each other in a very time-consuming and costly process to win relatively small amounts of money from central government, that system doesn't work for anyone, really, and that we need a replacement for it. And I think that there has been a move away from that recently. Um, there's been two big devolution deals signed in, in the West Midlands and Greater Manchester, where the two mayors of those areas, Andy Burnham and Andy Street, have been given a large pot of money that they have control over and they don't have to bid for things with it. They can do what they like with this money. So it gives them the flexibility to decide themselves. But for the rest of the country, they are still forced into this uh, this sort of Hunger Games style scenario as described by Lisa Nandy uh, of Labour. And everyone says that it needs to end. Uh, and it's just how we get away from this this system, which is the big question. So we'll be interesting to hit, see how that debate uh, develops in, in the coming weeks and whether we do reach a better system that means that areas of the North are forced to bid against each other. So, D- David, uh, thank you thank you for explaining that story to us today. Oh, well, thanks for, thanks for having me. Now, 
Now, cast your mind back to last June, and it was a sweltering hot day in Doncaster when political and business leaders came together for the first conference of the Northern Research Group, the caucus of Conservative MPs representing seats around the region, many newly won from Labour. Rishi Sunak, then Chancellor, turned up and enthusiastically chatted with MPs and councillors the night before the event. But Prime Minister Boris Johnson bailed at the last minute, deciding instead to visit Ukraine for talks with its president. Within a few weeks, he was out of a job as Prime Minister and, after a short, rather disastrous hiatus under Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak was in number 10. Now, the NRG will this June be back in Doncaster for its annual conference again, but how much has changed in terms of the political context, the importance of the levelling up agenda that we hear so much about, and the importance of Northern voters and their needs to decision-making in Downing Street. We've got a great person to discuss this, uh, John Stevenson, MP for Carlisle and Chair of the Northern Research Group. So, John, thanks for joining us again. Hello, pleased to be here. Obviously, you, you took over as Chair of the NRG a few months ago from Jake Berry, who was previously doing it. A lot has changed. Uh, in the last nine months uh, to a year. It's been a a pretty frenetic period in British politics. I mean, in terms of the relationship the government has with uh, its northern Tory backbenchers like yourself and the NRG that you you lead, how would you compare how things are now under Rishi Sunak with the Boris Johnson era? Is Is it better? Do you feel like you're being listened to more? Or is the importance of levelling up sort of drop down the political agenda a bit? At one level, I think it's very different. At another level, it's actually very similar. I mean, Boris and Rishi are very different personalities. You've got Boris who's very much the the big personality, the vision thing, while Rishi's far more into the detail. But at the end of the day, what actually really matters, it's about policy and implementation of policy and delivery. So to some extent, yes, the personalities have changed, but the agenda hasn't and the direction of travel hasn't. And I think at the end of the day, that's just far more important that we get the policy right and worry less about the personality. So you think Rishi Sunak is is as ambitious in terms of what the North needs and, and, and levelling up and you know the scale of the resource that needs to be put in? You think he's as ambitious in that regard as Boris Johnson purported to be when he was Prime Minister? Well, clearly the Prime Minister Rishi does recognise the importance of North and the agenda that we have it. For the north, clearly he's the prime minister of the whole country, so has to uh, take care of other areas of the country. While we, as northern MPs, concentrate on our agenda for the north, but he's very aware of what we're doing. He meets with us regularly. We have uh, good discussions with him and debates. But more importantly, it is about policy and the delivery of policy. And one thing Rishi does get completely is we must deliver and try and deliver as much as we can before the next election. Well, we'll come back to that uh, shortly. So your your, your com- big conference in Doncaster, um, I, I see from the press release that it, 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 I think you're going to have three big sort of economic asks of the government, uh, which I'm, I'm guessing you're not in a position to reveal now. But like, broadly speaking, what's the sort of main, the main thrust of what Northern Tory MPs are going to be saying in, the, in this conference? How, how are they feeling at the moment? Well, it follows on from what was a very successful conference last year, and all credit to Jake Berry for leading us into that conference and the debates that we had then. This one's slightly different. I mean, our 
branding is very much stronger north, stronger Britain, the importance of the north. If we build up the north and improve it, then it helps the whole of the country. But what the conference will be primarily concerned about is looking ahead to the next general election and to the agenda and the manifesto that we will have. And what we want to do as MPs is engage with people in the North Party members and those who have an interest about policy, what policies that we think we can bring forward and effectively a manifesto for the North, but try and influence our national governments uh, or our national parties' policy initiatives on the next manifesto and incorporate some of those ideas that will come out of the conference. I remember the conference last year, one of Jake Berry's big policy ideas that he unveiled was a so-called Voxbridge for the North. So two big, big uh, vocational education institutions in the north of England that would be a rival to Oxford and Cambridge. It doesn't seem like that is an idea that the government has taken forward. Do you think the the government will be listening to what you're saying at this at this conference or do, do you have to perhaps scale your ideas down a little bit in order for them to be deliverable like like you said in 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 the 18 months or so we have before the next election? Well, it's a bit of both. We've already got, in many respects, an agenda, the levelling up agenda. And I'm sure we'll discuss some of aspects of that in due course. Though that is ongoing, what we now need to do is look ahead at what other policy initiatives we can bring forward. And sometimes the ideas that we bring forward and present to government, they change slightly, but they do take away the principles and the ideas behind them. And that was very much with the levelling up fund, which was originally an NRG idea, which um, Rishi Sunak, when he was Chancellor, took forward and then developed for the whole of the country. So policy initiatives that come out from the North can actually be of benefit nationally as well as regionally. But what we've got to do, I think, at the conference is look at policy initiatives that we think will improve the North, going back to our uh, idea of a stronger North, stronger Britain, and then get those incorporated into the national manifesto. And they, yes, they may change slightly, but it's the principles and the fundamental ideas that I think are very important. The levelling up fund, which you mentioned, it's worth £4.8 billion in total. And Labour, uh, they, they were talking in, in the Commons uh, this week, they made, made the point that only 8% of that £4.8 billion has been spent thus far which I, I know I realise there's a whole load of reasons for that and that it, it, it takes time to, to, to get that money out, out of the door to where it's needed. But are you concerned that when MPs in marginal seats in the North go back to voters ahead of the election next year, they're going, it's going to be hard for them to point to sort of tangible evidence of actual improvement on the ground since 2019, when many of them will have been voting Conservative for the first time, given you know the length of time some of these projects take to sort of get get going. I think this is a really interesting point. The first point I would make is that if you go back to where we were a number of years ago in Labour-run councils and Labour governments, they did very, very little for the North. You never saw real investment pots or investment coming into the North. And what you have seen since under the Conservatives is towns fund, high street funds, levelling up fund, devolution deals, city deals, borderland deals. So there's a lot of investment going in. Yes, we fully accept it takes time to implement. And I've got my uh, one aspect of uh, investment in Carlisle, the ring road. It was given the go ahead in 2017 and funding allocated, but you've got to get the planning permission, you've got to get the CPOs in place, etc. And it's just now been given the final go ahead. The building will go ahead this year and it'll be completed in 2025. 
But I think the public get that. I think they recognise that it does actually take time for investments and projects to, to be completed and concluded. And I also give the, advan- the, um, the example of London, where we have the Elizabeth Line. It's taken many, many years and a huge amount of investment to be implemented. It's now up and running. People absolutely love it. It's extremely well used. But there are parts of London and people in London who will never use that Elizabeth Line, but they still think it's of value to their city and to their economy. In the north, we've got to get used to that idea that investments that are happening in Carlisle or Manchester or Leeds benefit other parts of the north, even though you're not directly benefiting. And then collectively, you raise the performance, the economic performance and the success of the north together. You can't do it in isolation. So yes, I go back to your point of 8% has been spent. That will start to increase and will continue to increase over the next few years. What we also want to do is make sure there are other investment projects coming behind it as well. Now, just looking at the general election next year is kind of at the forefront of a lot of people's minds already, even though we're you know eight, eighteen months out, eighteen months out potentially. And I see that uh, in in the north of England, there's already quite a few uh, current Conservative MPs who have said that they won't be standing. And there's quite a few different reasons for that, like Deanna Davison, uh, who's a levelling up minister, says you know she's still in her twenties and she wants to live the life of a, a normal 20-something rather than being in politics, whereas Sir Graham Brady, has he's seen it all and he, uh, you know, even though he's in his 50s, he's had enough as well. And there's Craig Whitaker in the cold, Calder Valley and a few others. But there's quite a few Conservative MPs, aren't they, who don't feel they want to carry on beyond next year uh, and, and for quite a number of different reasons. I mean, is, is that a concern to you? Does that reflect a lack of optimism about your chances next year or, 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 or are, are people just reading reading too much into it? I think you're reading a bit too much into it. So, for example, Sir Graham Brady has been an MP for many, many years. Craig Whitaker um, is in his early 60s, probably wants to do something different and has been an MP or will be an MP for 14 years come the election. So I think you've got to be careful that you don't read too much into it. However, the loss of people like Tahina, I think, is a, a great pity because she's a talented young woman Um who has made a contribution to politics, and we want people like her to be active in politics. And I think it says a, a number of things. And one of area where I have some concern is that an awful lot of MPs come under, particularly the women, sadly, come under a lot of abuse and a lot of pressure through social media. And I think we've got to be careful. Yes, we've got to be uh, hold MPs to account, hold our politicians to account, uh, have transparency and accountability. But by the same token, we are a, a, a democracy is a precious thing and we've got to look after it. And I sometimes think maybe the media themselves should be a little bit more supportive of what MPs are trying to do from all political parties, because it's central to our democratic society that we do ensure that we have MPs of calibre getting elected. So the loss of Dahina, I think, is a real pity and a real shame, although I can understand some of the reasons that she's doing it. Now, just turning to a couple of issues uh, in your home patch of Cumbria, you've come out recently and said that uh, a tourism tax could be the way to bring vital extra funds into the county. It was a big report on uh, fiscal devolution by the Northern Powerhouse Partnership. And it's been suggested that in areas like yours, a £1 per night charge for for tourists could generate more than £5.5 million a year in the Lake District. But I see there is some opposition to this idea, so, and, and some people locally say that tourism businesses, uh, you know, co- costs are already 
high on on, on people and an extra tax will be adding more more an extra cost that people might not be willing to pay i mean can you explain a bit more about the thinking behind uh, behind this and, and what it might mean for for areas like yours i take a step back and i look at what where we are as a country we're a highly centralized country and our tax take something like 95 percent of all taxes go through central government rather than through local government and that is unique in developed countries across the world so we are a highly centralized country and i think that distorts some of the decisions that are made and the impact it can have on local communities so that's sort of the back the 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 backstory of where we are what i want to see a, a lot more of is a connection between what is spent in local communities and what is raised in local communities. And that's about devolution. I mean, I'm a great supporter of devolution because I think it's giving empowerment to local communities to make their own decisions. Now, I'm not necessarily totally in favor of a um, tourist tax, but I think the concept and the ideas of having taxes that relate to particular areas is not necessarily a bad thing. And if you take the specific example of the Lake District in Cumbria, we have half a million people, but we have something like 14 million visitors. And they use our facilities, our roads, our policing, etc. But there's very small tax base to pay for that. We also have the Lake District to look after, the beauty of that. So the, the idea of having some sort of additional tax for people who are visiting the Lake District, which then supports the Lake District and the offer that we have, isn't necessarily a bad one. But what I think we've got to do not just in Cumbria, but across the board, is look at what taxes are relevant to local areas. Can they be uh, can they be passed to that local area to determine what they should and shouldn't be, and then have some sort of link between what is spent and what is raised at the local level? That's really interesting. And of course, the wider context for this, I guess, it, it is the ongoing debate about devolution and uh, metro mayors and what form of devolution is best for different areas we're going to be hearing from north yorkshire uh, a little later in this uh, podcast where obviously they have undergone a big uh, shake-up in local government as cumbria has but they are getting a, a metro mayor uh, out of it with new powers and resources from government uh, that is not happening in cumbria you're getting rid of your two-tier council system with the district and county councils being replaced by two new unitary authorities. What difference do you expect that to make when it takes place in the next few days? And, and, and do you think that Cumbria is missing out by not following North Yorkshire's example and, and getting a big devolution deal out of the, the, the government shake-up that it's had? I think there's two parts to your question. Uh, first of all, yes, I think it's a, a benefit to Cumbria to move from seven councils for half a million people to two councils, both unitaries. I think it gives clearer leadership. There should be some efficiency savings and people locally will know exactly which council is dealing with their services. So I think that's a real benefit and a positive way forward. Where I think Cumbria is missing out, which I think is what you allude to, is the fact that we could have had a combined authority and an elected mayor. That would have given us real leadership for the county. We'd have a figurehead, somebody everybody knows who's out there batting for Cumbria but we would have also drawn in additional funding into the county, which I think would have helped enormously in growing our local economy. So on the one hand, I think it's a real progress for Cumbria, and I think it's a very beneficial. But on the other hand, I'm disappointed that we're not taking the next stage and the next step forward and actually having a mayor. And ultimately, I would like to see mayors right across the north of England, because I think they are beginning to demonstrate their worth. 
and you see it in different parts of the north and we'll see what happens in North Yorkshire. But the danger for Cumbria is we do get uh, left behind and I think that would be a real pity. So what's stopping it happening in Cumbria for people who aren't familiar with with the uh, sort of local views on, on this matter? Is, is it the case that the, the local politicians in charge at the moment aren't persuaded by the need to have a mayor, essentially? Yes, I mean, one council is Labour run, one council is Liberal Democrat run, and at present, neither of them seem to want to move to the next stage, which is that combined authority and elected mayor. And I think they miss out because they've failed to recognise that as one of the authorities being part of the combined authority, they would have quite a lot of influence and ability to decide what does happen with the additional funds that do come in under the mayoral model. But I'm also a little bit disappointed with the government themselves that they didn't take reserve powers so that they could come across and say there is support for a mayor in your area, notwithstanding that the councils don't want one, and we are going to implement one. Because if you go around Cumbria, particularly the business community, there is very strong support for a mayor, and they're being thwarted by the actions of local councils. And I just think we've missed an opportunity from the national perspective of having the powers to uh, have one implemented, and secondly, from the local councils not embracing the idea. Well, we'll see whether that situation changes at all in the next few months. John Stevenson, MP for Carlisle, thank you so much. Thank you. So we've heard from Cumbria. So now let's head down the A66 to North Yorkshire, another area which is ditching its two-tier system of district and county councils and trading it in for a shiny new unitary local authority to deliver all the important local services. The big difference between these two largely rural counties is that unlike in Cumbria, in North Yorkshire, the major shakeup of local government, which will see the likes of Harrogate Council, and Scarborough Council disappear this week will also bring a devolution deal which will mean a new metro mayor with extra powers and hundreds of million pounds of new funding elected next year. Not everyone thinks this is a price worth paying and critics point out that people living in Selby in the south of England's largest county will now be represented by a council whose headquarters is a 112 mile round trip away in North Allerton but Those in favour of devolution say the deal struck with the government last summer is the only way for places like North Yorkshire to tackle some of the big issues it faces on issues like skills, transport and housing. One man who knows all about some of the issues uh, involved is my guest today, Keen Duncan, who is the executive member for Highways and Transport on the outgoing North Yorkshire County Council and was previously the Conservative leader of Rydale, one of the district councils being replaced. Under the new North Yorkshire Council, he'll have an expanded brief that includes flooding and coastal protection. I should say at this point also that Keane also works for Reach, the company behind the Northern Agenda, on the Daily Star news desk. So Keane, welcome to the podcast. Good afternoon, Rob. Pleasure to talk to you. Perhaps I should just ask you first about how you're feeling about this big change in North Yorkshire politics. Obviously, you were leader of Rydale Council for a while. And I remember two or three years ago when this big shakeup was being debated, I think you were arguing for a different model of two new councils to what we are going to get. I mean, so now that we're on the on the verge of this happening, does it feel like we're embarking on a sort of glorious new era for North Yorkshire politics? Yeah, I think we've got a huge opportunity with the new North Yorkshire Council. 
Obviously, Rob, as you know, we had a debate a couple of years ago about the model, the structure of what Unitra should look like in North Yorkshire. I was advocating for the doomed east-west model at that time, um, highlighting the issues around the size of the new Unitary Authority. We've had that debate, um, and while I argued for a different proposal, what I was always arguing for was for the benefits of Unitary. We actually stood on a platform at Rydell District Council to deliver a Unitary Authority. I didn't think, I'll be totally honest with you, it was going to happen in the time frame that we are now looking at, uh, but that was the pledge because with Unitary, we have one authority, one point of accountability, one point of contact for local residents. It will give us financially sustainable services into the future. So we have a really big opportunity. My focus now is on highways and transport, um, but all of us at the council have to be focused on ensuring that we make the most of this opportunity and delivering for the 620,000 residents of North Yorkshire. Like you say, there's been a, a pretty spirited debate about the whole thing and it's gone on for a while. I mean, do, do you understand why some people don't like the idea and, and continue not to like the idea? Because like, like you say, North Yorkshire is a, a very big place. It's got a population of 600,000 plus people. Uh, for it to be just represented by one council and obviously there's going to be a mayor who's going to come in which some people argue is placing a lot of power in just one set of hands that some people say it's going to be anti-democratic and obviously there's the size of, of what's involved you know in, uh, North Yorkshire being England's largest uh, geographical county you've got this enormous patch to cover there's a whole host of criticisms I mean do you think with all that being said what's happening is still all in all, a good a good thing. It, dealing with the issue of unitary first, a new unitary council, I believe in all circumstances that any unitary authority is better than the two-tier system. So I'm happy with us moving forward. I advocated for that alternative model, as I mentioned, but what I wanted to deliver was unitary. That will give us the platform to deliver devolution, as you've mentioned, greater power, greater powers, more say over issues affecting North Yorkshire. That is of massive benefit to us um, and will really help address some of those key issues around transport, around economic development, around housing. That's absolutely essential. I understand the concerns. I highlighted many of those concerns throughout that discussion. We are talking about a unitary authority, unprecedented in its scale, 620,000 people across an area five times the size of Greater London. I'm fully aware of that. What that means that we need to do as an authority is ensure that we have that local focus to ensure that we are delivering for everybody in all corners of North Yorkshire. While we're talking about devolution from Westminster to North Yorkshire, what we're talking about at the new Unitary Authority is actually devolving decision-making down within the county. So that means... Um, consulting and involving town and parish councils, giving them control over assets and key areas, and also making sure that we are listening to local councillors, local members in the areas where they are elected, where they are accountable. We now have one councillor for one area. There's one exception to that, but on the whole, everybody in North Yorkshire has a single councillor, a single point 
of accountability. So we want to make sure that they're listened to. And we also want to make sure that each of the constituencies within the county is heard, that they are able to make decisions for their part of the very vast county of North Yorkshire. So really, it's about localism and ensuring that we are acting for all parts of the county. So I'm really interested in how well-placed North Yorkshire is as it stands on the on the precipice of this big change to solve some of the problems that it faces. And I know one of the big ones is buses, which listeners to this podcast will know is a matter of concern across the north in Manchester, West Yorkshire, Teesside, as cuts to local services really start to deepen. But in rural areas like yours, there's a different type of challenge, isn't there? Because the distances between towns and villages are so much bigger and the population is so much sparser so that the sort of the business model for local buses is, is is quite different. Can you just give us a bit more detail, given that this is your your brief, about what's going on with buses in North Yorkshire and how you're how concerned I guess you are about what they might look like going forward? We know that in rural areas like North Yorkshire we have immense challenges around transport. These are unique challenges, um, very different to the major cities. We are currently facing an unprecedented situation in terms of our rural bus services. Up to a third of North Yorkshire's network is at risk right now of service reduction, so changes to timetables, or services ceasing altogether. We're doing everything that we can to work with operators to support them, to identify areas of investment. The key issues really are around increased running costs. We know that Inflation has taken its toll and also passenger numbers. So passenger numbers right now are around 80% of where they were before the COVID pandemic. So the situation that's been created is routes that had previously been operated um, independent of the council, operated privately, that were profitable and now no longer so or struggling to be profitable for those operators. So we're trying to support them as best as we can. There are also issues around staff shortages, so driver issues as well, difficulties in terms of recruiting in rural areas like North Yorkshire. The distances and the critical mass that you need um, to ensure that you have viable services, we don't have that in the county. So it's always an uphill battle to deliver those services. It's right that people have access to essential services, that they have a public transport system that's fit for purpose, but actually delivering that in reality is very difficult. We do use um, our budget to support services, but that's increasingly stretched and at the moment can't rise to the challenges which we're facing. There have been a number of positive um, steps. We've seen support from the Department for Transport, and that has been critical. Without that, we would not have the bus network that we have today, we would have lost um, significant amounts of routes. The £2 fare cap um, that's been introduced, it's ongoing at the moment, that is showing real potential. We've seen some real success stories. One that I'd like to mention is the 840 Coastliner service, the most scenic bus route in Britain that runs from York through to Whitby. That is one of the services that had been at risk they are now seeing soaring demand from passengers as a result of that £2 fare cap. So government's intervention has been very welcome. 
But the question mark is what happens inevitably when that support ends? We have to make sure that we're working with operators to ensure that passengers are choosing bus services. The key is passengers. Without passengers, we do not have a financially sustainable system. We can't have that. So we need to encourage people to use these services, to invest where we can. That's what's going to make the key difference. Am I right in thinking that you, uh, that North Yorkshire bid for money from the government, the, the Bus Back Better scheme, didn't didn't you? And you, you were unsuccessful, I think. You didn't get any money out of that. So where where does the money come from to make these improvements that, that services will need? Like, Is it going to have to be from passengers' pockets ultimately, or is or, or could there be some other kind of funding coming coming down the track? Yeah, we're we're working in partnership with operators. So primarily this is private sector led. We're taking a coordinating role. You are right. We had ambitious plans to our BSIP. We were unsuccessful. We didn't receive any funding from that. We have had a small amount of funding. We're talking about hundreds of thousands compared to Manchester that's had hundreds of millions. We're seeing some of the fantastic investment that's taking place over in Manchester, but that actually touches at the heart of the issue. We talk about levelling up, we talk about devolution, and we look at it through the lens of north-south, that north-south divide. Actually, we need to start looking at this through the lens of rural and urban, and I actually see that as much more of the dividing line at the moment. Uh, Well done to the big cities with turbocharging the major cities in the north. That's fantastic. We're not resentful of that. Um, We welcome that. But we need to make sure that there is delivery also for rural areas like North Yorkshire. And we're talking about the bare basics here, a transport system to get to work, um, affordable housing so that people can afford to live in North Yorkshire, making sure um, that we have well-paid jobs, education and skills opportunities. So these are really essentials in in this country. And um, I would be very keen to see that investment here in rural areas, not just talking about the North as one amalgam. We have to talk about um, those um, dividing lines between rural and urban as well. I mean, I guess the big difference uh, or one of the big particularly distinct things about Greater Manchester is that uh, Andy Burnham, the mayor there, is taking buses under public control uh, and the franchising model. I'm guessing that is not something that a Conservative-run North Yorkshire Council or, or uh, whoever the mayor ends up being will, would, would, would consider because of the different sort of demographics, the different, the different scale of what you're looking at in North Yorkshire. Yeah, obviously, Greater Manchester is now the first area outside of London since deregulation to try to build a sort of public control of the network. Franchising, obviously, control over timetabling, control over ticketing, pricing, the colour of buses. Um, But in terms of our situation right now for North Yorkshire, we're in a very different situation. This is about really bare basic survival for our services, protecting as many of those services as we we can. That will give us the best foundations for building those services back in the future. The new mayor of York and North Yorkshire will have franchising powers from May of 2024. It would likely take two years to actually deliver a franchised system. So we're talking 2026 at the earliest. 
we have immediate issues that we need to address right now and that can only be achieved by working very closely with operators that's the only option that we have at our disposal franchising as well um, may well work in big cities in london in manchester in liverpool in terms of rural areas in North Yorkshire, where there might be just one service that's very infrequent, potentially a weekly service, or if we're lucky, a daily service, and also significant parts of the county with no service at all. Actually, franchising is much more difficult. Um, In Manchester, it's cost over £100 million to deliver that, supported by central government. Those costs would likely be significantly higher in somewhere like North Yorkshire. We don't have competition in many areas. Franchising works well where you've got that competition to actually try to engineer the best value from the private operators. Where we don't have that, what we're likely to be doing is causing significant disruption, taking back control from operators only to hand it to the very same operators again because we have a limited number of those operating in parts of the county. We have got urban centres like Harrogate and Scarborough where we have a more comprehensive network, but for most parts of the county, we don't have the right circumstances where franchising could have the maximum value. That's the way that I see it. Obviously, that will be a decision for the new mayor and the mayoral combined authority, which we will play a very key part in. But franchising in rural areas is much more difficult and potentially isn't the golden bullet solution, um, which many are hoping it will be. So another big issue for North Yorkshire, I know, is the A64, which for people who don't know, is the main road connecting York and Leeds with the coast and places like Scarborough and Whitby. And for years and years, politicians have been calling for it to be made into a dual carriageway. And we often hear positive noises from government ministers uh, about this happening, but not much concrete ever seems to happen, at least from where I'm standing. Um, The latest news is that it could now be 2030 at the earliest before anything happens on this. I mean, can you just explain why this matters so much to people in North Yorkshire? and What, if anything, you can do to to speed this up, make it happen quicker? Yeah, the A64 is a, a key corridor running between York and Scarborough. The A64 suffers daily congestion. It's dangerous. It's holding our region back economically. Dueling is essential for unlocking economic growth and business opportunities in our county. It's also critical for road safety. It is amongst one of the most dangerous roads in the north. It's a key priority for the council. It's a key priority for our members of parliament. We've been campaigning on this for many, many decades prior to me coming into post. The economic case is very strong. Business is behind it. There's public support there, immense public support for this scheme taking place. You've mentioned that delay. We're now looking at this scheme being delivered, not in 2025-30, but 2030-35, potentially many further years of delay. What we want to see is delivery, not delay. And I mentioned about turbocharging cities in terms of transport, we actually need to make sure that if we're serious about levelling up Britain, we can't level up without levelling up the north. We can't level up Britain without levelling up rural 
areas. And the A64 is a key piece of infrastructure that has to be a priority for any government that is serious about levelling up. We've got record investment in transport. The government's committed to that, billions and billions of pounds. But we have to demonstrate that we're looking after issues in the north and in rural parts specifically of the north. So, um, Keen, the last big travel topic I was going to ask you about was active travel, uh, which also comes within your brief. There's obviously travel by bike or walking, which feels like it's become a real sort of political hot potato around different parts of the country. You might have seen that in Rochdale, the council introduced a so-called low traffic neighbourhood where planters are put in place to stop cars getting through in a bid to cut congestion and pollution. But the whole thing's been put on pause because the planters were were vandalised, presumably by people who oppose the uh, restrictions on car movement. I know in Harrogate there is a scheme to cut traffic which was launched a year or two ago and then not continued. And there's a very vocal cycling lobby saying you ought to be doing more to allow people to get around North Yorkshire towns and villages uh, without a car. I mean, do, do you see these kind of quite controversial often schemes like this playing a, a prominent role in North Yorkshire going forward? Yeah, this is, as you say, a hot potato. Um, let me talk first about the principle. So the principle of promoting active travel, encouraging more people who are able to and who want to, to be able to walk and cycle, that absolutely has got to be a positive step forward and something that's got to be the focus of the new North Yorkshire Council, it's healthier, it's cheaper, it's more sustainable and better for the environment. So the principle absolutely is right. In terms of delivery of walking and cycling infrastructure, that does become more difficult. Harrogate is the centre of some of that debate at the moment. Harrogate, very divided in many ways, but it's right that we do take steps to encourage those who can and who want to, to be able to walk and cycle. You mentioned the Rochdale example there of the low traffic neighbourhood. We had introduced something similar, some modal filters in one very small section of Harrogate. That quickly became a symbol of anti-travel sentiment. It was actually harming the cause of active travel. I think that was partly due to the way that it was introduced People couldn't understand the logic behind that. They couldn't see how it connected to a a more strategic plan for active travel. So I think there are some lessons which we can learn as an authority from that. We introduced that on a temporary basis and we removed those filters. So they're no longer in place. Some people very much welcome that. The active travel cyclist lobby obviously was very much opposed to that. I think the thinking now has moved on quite considerably from government around low traffic neighbourhoods and modal filters. They're wanting to see segregated, high quality, um, a strategic approach to cycling infrastructure, not just a standalone um, system blocking roads off. We need to work, I think, to achieve a balanced approach to transport. Um, We have to take steps in the right way we have to draw up that strategic approach that i mentioned and this actually sort of became a distraction from all of that if we can make interventions if people can see the benefits over time 
I think we will build more and more support for the more radical schemes which we need to actually promote that healthier, happier, more sustainable transport system. It really is not easy. I can say that from the front line of some of these debates. Ultimately, we can't please everybody and we have to have an eye on the future. We have to have an eye on that strategic plan. And sometimes we're going to have to make decisions which are not universally popular, but in the end will deliver the results which we need. We have chronic issues of congestion within Harrogate and within within other towns in North Yorkshire. The best way to address those is through sustainable transport. That's the right thing to do, um, but we've got a long way to get to where we need to be. Keen Duncan, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks, Rob. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.